0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to Hope for Your Heart. This is Pastor Calvin Corbett. So glad that you're joining me today. And I'm going to do a several-part message on this subject. Why should I do right when I've been done wrong? And I'm calling this the parody of Joseph. You know, a boy sat across from the smartest girl in his class. When they took tests, the boy was really tempted to cheat. Well, one day he gave into that temptation The teacher suspected him of cheating and called both students into her class after school. The teacher said to the boy, I think you cheated on your test. The boy asked, well, why? The teacher says, well, you both got the highest score. That's just coincidence, the boy said. Well, maybe the teacher replied, but you both got one wrong. Coincidence, the boy said. Well, maybe the teacher replied, but it's the same one. Coincidence, the boy insisted. Well, maybe, the teacher said. But she wrote, I don't know, and you wrote, I don't know either. (laughs) Well, the big question deserves some big answers. One thing we can rely on is that the global church will never be any smaller than it was yesterday. The church is always growing. Did you know that by 2030, 70% of the global missions force will not be coming from North America. In the single greatest missional shift in all of church history, missionaries from every world region are headed to every world region. South Korea is actually sending out more missionaries to other countries than any other country in the world. I want you to know as we look at this parody of Joseph, why should I do right when I've done wrong, that Christianity is helping us to answer this question. You know, in the last six years, the global church has witnessed more than 1.5 million new church plants, with more than 250 million people coming to Christ. That's just in the last six years. You see, the Lord's church is growing faster than any other time in history. One of the measures of the global growth of the church is that we are able to discover firsthand a doubling of the size of churches from over 1 billion to more than two billion in our generation. Now this is amazing when you think about it. I know that we can get discouraged when we're thinking about what's happening in the United States but our our measurement for success it should be how much we fulfill the Great Commission. If our churches and our ministries, Do not measure effectiveness based upon the Great Commission, then we're not going to see the church really grow astronomically within the United States. Churches in the United States are growing, and I'm going to put my church in this one too, right? Churches in the United States are growing because of transfer growth. And that's disheartening. We're not really making a dent, but I'm so glad that across the globe we are seeing the Great Commission being carried out. In Matthew chapter 24, Now, this is to give you hope. Matthew 24 reminds us of what's happening. Now, I'm talking about churches that are really growing across the globe. And ironically, they're in places where there's a lot of persecution. Jesus said this, and this will strengthen our hope as we look worldwide that the Lord will finish what he has said that he would do regarding the fulfillment of the Great Commission. But he said in Matthew 24, verse 9, you're going to be handed over to be persecuted, to be put to death and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will be betraying one another and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And then verse 14, in this gospel of the kingdom, will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we learned that there's going to be a tide of evangelism, of church planning, and it's going to be rising across the earth as never before. Those wasting time standing on the beach of time are going to get more than wet. They're going to be washed off the beach without another opportunity to be involved in a Bible-based missional opportunity. You know, as I was putting this message together, I was really surprised because we think, you know, in the United States that a large church is more than a 1,000, and we have several churches that have more than 10,000. We have a few churches that have more than 50,000 in the United States, but across the globe, you know, in Seoul, South Korea, there was a church that was started back in the 1980s, and that church started by David Cho, now has... 830,000 people attending, and uh, throughout their various campuses, they are offering services in 16 different languages and dialects. Unbelievable. There's a Methodist church in Chile that was started back in the 1900s, early 1900s, and today that church is running 350,000 people. And they said the churches that have started because of this one church— Uh, Has impacted 1.37 million people. There's a church that is located in South Africa today that was started in 1985, and that main campus is running 45,000 people. There's a church in India today. In India, uh, much of our faith is against the law, but we're training missionaries in India, and there are 40,000 satellite churches started by this one church, and that man's name is David Mohan. And uh, he started a church that started churches that started churches that started churches. And so now there are actually 40,000 and counting satellite churches. Unbelievable. And then my friends in Nigeria. Nigeria has a church started by a pastor there with a 50,000 seat auditorium, which is The actually the largest auditorium for a church in the world. Uh, Now, that may be changing very soon. There's another congregation that's building a larger auditorium than that, but unbelievable. Uh, There's a church in San Salvador running 200,000 people. There's a church in the Philippines running 200,000 people. So, as you think about this, our Lord continues to raise up mountains of ministry. Throughout the world, we're seeing the fulfillment of the Great Commission. This phenomenal growth is here, and it represents just a portion of what God is doing. Now, you say, well, why do we share all this? I thought we were going to be talking about why I should do right even when I'm done wrong. The reason I bring this up is because these churches that are experiencing exponential growth are churches that have been done wrong. They're in places of persecution, but they decided not to be the victim. We have a dear pastor friend, Pastor Friday. Many of you listening to me may be familiar with his ministry. Maybe you even support his ministry. Hickory Ridge Community Church is actually kind of like the clearinghouse for his ministry. So when you support his ministry, if you're sending money in, it comes to us and, and we wire it over to him once a month and he's doing an amazing job not long ago, we decided that we would pray for his church because they were going through a time of severe persecution. And so I actually put Pastor Friday on a conference call, put him on the speakerphone so that he could join us for this prayer meeting. And I asked him, now, now Pastor Friday, how would you like us to specifically pray for you and your congregation? And now what he said shocked me because I was thinking he's going to say, Well, why don't you pray that some of this persecution will die down and that that we can experience peace and there'd be no conflict and there'd be no persecution. And I just pray that God will hold back some of this persecution. That's kind of what I'd be praying if I was in this situation. But he didn't pray that. He didn't ask us to pray that. He said, Would you pray that the church will remain pure and strong during these times of persecution? You see, he knew something about persecution that I don't think we understand. When there's persecution that is facing the church, it's because God is getting ready to do His greatest work. That is how the church was birthed. That is how the church grows. So when we face people that have done us wrong, I want you to know we don't have to respond doing wrong. We can respond by doing right. You see, if we are interested in soul winning, then heaven is interested in our success. God's main purpose is winning the lost. And if we're going to be involved in winning the lost, you've got to be involved in overcoming temptation. In 1 John two fifteen to 17, Jesus says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and he tells us three things that are in the world: the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he says, these three things are not from the Father, but is of this world. So if we're going to overcome temptation, realize that temptation falls into one of these three categories. Now, do you want to live a life that provides an example of how to fall in temptation, or, do you want to live a life? that gives an example how to overcome temptation. You know, everyone listening to me today who is a believer of Christ, you're doing one of two things. You are being an excellent example of how to live the Christian life, or you're providing an excellent example of how not to live the Christian life. I told you all temptation falls into three categories. Let's look at these three categories. The lust of the flesh. Now, that's personal this is what we're talking about, personal aspiration. Jesus says as he's being tempted and being responsive to the enemy, remember Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter 4 after he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, went without food, went without water, and he's tempted. And Jesus' response to that temptation when the enemy says, well, if you are the son of God, you see these stones Turn them into bread. I mean, you're starving to death. Just go ahead and perform a miracle. Take these rocks, turn them into bread. Go ahead and get something to eat. But Jesus responds and says, I'm not giving in to the lust of the flesh. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to be turned into bread. Jesus says, Man does not live by bread alone. You see, when we look at this, Jesus was driving home the point that when we give in to the lust of the flesh, we are giving into the enemy's plan, the lust of the eyes. Now this is for personal gratification, right? Getting back to the temptation of Christ. remember he was tempted by the enemy and says, "Now if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. You see, here he was going to get the gratification of a miracle that would take place, and he would protect his own self, but that was personal gratification. And then the third temptation was the temptation of the personal reputation. You know, devil takes him up to a high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all of their splendor. And he says, all this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Now, as we look at these three temptations, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, this is the same way that the enemy tried to tempt Eve, Uh, through the lust of the flesh, the enemy says to Eve, see that she saw that the tree was good for food. She looked at it. Said, man, that'd be good for food. Why can't I have that? And then the lust of the eyes was that it was pleasant to her eyes. It it looked good, right? Not only was it able to to give that personal aspiration fulfillment, but it's also that personal gratification. It looked good, right? And then the third part was that personal pride of life. It was desirable to make one wise, so she took it and she ate. You know, as I think about people coming against us and giving into this allurement to God, James tells us that we should submit, therefore, to God. Now, if you don't submit to God, you will submit to temptation. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't resist him, and he'll be drawn to you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, that's our problem. We're dual-minded. On one hand, we want to submit to God, but we also want to give in to temptation. On one hand, we want to resist the devil, but on the other hand, we don't want to resist the devil. If you understand the power of overcoming sin you will live victorious. You know, resisting temptation is habit-forming, and so is giving into temptation. Martin Luther said this, three things that make a Christian strong, prayer, meditation, and temptation. Not giving into temptation, but resisting temptation. Luther might very well have had great difficulty in getting anybody to agree with him, if indeed Temptation is a sort of necessary evil. Wouldn't be hard-pressed to find a non-Christian who would call it an evil, or a Christian who would think it is necessary? A careful look at Scripture will prove that Luther was right. Temptation plays a vital role in the growth and the maturing of the Christian. And what is more, temptation played a significant role in the preparation of our Lord Jesus Christ for His public presentation as Israel's Messiah. So I want to share with you today and tomorrow and maybe into Friday, seven ways to overcome temptation from the life of Joseph. In other words, how can I do right when I'm done wrong? How can I resist temptation? We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 39. Now, now here's my first point. If you want to overcome temptation, number one, be consistent and your convictions, regardless of your circumstances. Charles Spurgeon said, A man's life is always more forcibly given than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. If his life and his doctrine disagree, the mass of onlookers accept his practice and reject his preaching. Now, now Paul knew this was true, right? Paul says, I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to preach one way and live another way. So know your boundaries before being tempted. And don't flirt around the edges. Circumstances will always change, but convictions should rarely change. They are your core beliefs. These are the non-negotiables. We have a wonderful example of this given in Acts chapter 5. And I just want to read this from the English Standard Version. And when they were there, they brought them and they set them before the council. And this is the the apostles coming before the council. And we'll look at specifically uh, who is in this situation. And they're bringing in there. The high priests are questioning them. And they're saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. In other words, they had already been warned. Listen, you guys need to stop proclaiming, and teaching in the name of Jesus. And they said, "What you guys have disobeyed. You have filled all of Jerusalem with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're talking about Christ. Peter's there, and Peter answers them and says, you know what? You can tell us what we can't teach. We can tell us not to teach in his name. Uh, You can blame us for making you feel guilty about taking the life of Christ. But here's what we got to do. Peter and the apostles answered We must obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him. He's at the right hand as the leader and the Savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those. Who obey him. And now, when they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And so here they said, Okay, guys, we've heard what you had to say. You're going to obey God rather than a man. Uh, we're going to dismiss you for now and we're going to figure out what we're going to do. So Gamaliel says, to them, men of Israel, take care what you do about to these men. In other words, be careful what you do with these men. And he reminded them something similar happened to this. There was a guy by the name of Theodos, and he rose up, and he claimed to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But then he was killed, and all of his followers with him dispersed, and it came to Nothing. And then he says, Then there was another guy by the name of Judas. He was a Galilean who rose up in the days of the census. I'm not talking about Judas who betrayed Christ. Judas was kind of a popular name in biblical times. But this guy, Judas, got a group of people together during the days of the consensus, and many people were drawn away. Many people went after him and went with him, but he too perished, and all who followed him scattered. So in this present case, This is what I want to tell you. Keep away from these men. Let them alone. If this plan that they're undertaking is of man, it's going to fall. But if it's of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let him go. And they left the presence of the council get this, the apostles leave the council and they're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. And it says every day, they continued in the house, in the temple, and from house to house, and they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. So when temptation comes your way, realize that God's got a bigger picture and have those core convictions lined up. Know exactly what you believe. Be consistent with your conviction, regardless of what the circumstances may bring. Now, there's three times when temptation is most tempting. Number one is during stressful times. Number two is during successful times. And then number three is during safe times. Now, as we look at this opportunity. I think it kind of unfolds in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 39. Joseph was taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him in from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there, but the Lord was with Joseph. Now let me quickly give you the times of temptation. It was a stressful time for him. Verses one and two, he's enslaved, he's imprisoned, and he's abandoned. He's also having times of success. When we look at verses 3 to 9, we just see that he's a nobody, but then he becomes a somebody. So he's tempted there. But then it's also during times of safety. In verses 6 and 7, you discover that the temptation's there, but now it's not, and he's he's passed the test, but yet it's still coming, to temptation. So I want to encourage you today be consistent with your convictions regardless of your circumstances. Number two, be truthful and not excuseful. Not a word. Now, as we look at this, we discover that Joseph is being honest about what, is, what he's facing. He said, "When we refuse to give in temptation. It's because we've also refused to give into to a lie. You think about the craziest excuses that we offer up. I say excuses are cleverly disguised lies that we offer up. I was reading some of the craziest late-to-work excuses that are offered. Some would say, hey, it was because of the rain, or there's a pileup on the freeway. This one boss said, I've heard them all. Uh, and they've actually listened to some of these excuses for being late And he says they're essentially the same in every industry, according to Career Builder Survey of more than 1,000 human resource managers. Now, the most common reason for tardiness, are pretty familiar. You know, traffic was heavy, or I overslept, or or the weather was bad. Uh, But topping the list, uh, among the most unique excuses is one that was given by a man who was late. He says, I was here, but I fell asleep in the parking lot. Or, or somebody else says, I, I'm late because my fake eyelashes got stuck together. Uh, or I'm late, an astrologer warned me of a car accident on a major highway, so I took all the back roads. Another that raised the eyebrows was, I'm late because I had morning sickness. That was from a male employee. <laughs> the article noted, one thing for sure, innovation is not dead in America. I want you to know, the enemy will provide an excuse for you to give into temptation, but be truthful, not excuseful. Now, I know that kind of rhymes in a way, a strange way, but Joseph had every excuse possible to give into temptation, but he refused. You see, we will never overcome temptation as long as we are believing a lie. Excuses don't ease temptation, they feed temptation. We are all manufacturers to a degree. So don't buy into the excuse, live according to the truth. Well, today I want to invite you to join me for part two of this message tomorrow on how to do right when I've been done wrong. I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. If I can help you or if I can pray for you, feel free to shoot me a text or give me a call at 252 267 2365-252-267-2365. 2365-252-267-2365. God bless you. Thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to hear this broadcast again, you can have a free download at buzzsprout.com backslash 1890557. Or you can listen on Amazon, Spotify, Google Podcast, and Apple Podcast. Hickory Ridge Community Church is located at 3320 Battlefield Boulevard South in Chesapeake, Virginia. Sunday service times are 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. We'd love for you to join us. For more information, go to hrcc7.org. And remember, no matter what you're going through, in Jesus Christ there is always hope for your heart.